talking. Okay. Well, it's great to be with you all. I see some familiar faces. It's good to see you all again. And some new faces maybe that I haven't met since last time I was here. It's good to see you for the first time. Uh, I was just telling my congregation a few weeks ago when we started meeting again for the first time how I felt like the true preciousness of coming together as God's peculiar and unique people having not been able to do so for several months. And it really makes you feel that weight of the instruction in Hebrews 10 that, that says, do not neglect, let us not neglect the gathering of ourselves together. And so this really, I think we need to cherish this because there is likely coming a time when it won't be so easy to do so. But uh, anyway, I'm glad, really glad to be here with you all. This is special and thank you for having me. Um, it's really interesting the way that the Lord laid this all out because the last time I was with you, maybe some of you will remember, uh, th about this time last year, maybe a little earlier, and I preached on, uh, I preached on drawing near, but I, I, I preached on that really from the Old Testament predominantly and gave kind of a picture of the tabernacle and the, and the sacrificial system and, and all the different, uh, you know, the things that were required under the old covenant, that, that, in, that system that God had set up in order for them to draw near. And then I just touched on Hebrews 10 just a little bit. And so this time, as it were, you are in Hebrews 11. And so I'm going to do a little bit of a brief brushstroke in the Old Testament side and then focus more heavily on the Hebrews 10 side and then going into to Hebrews 11 where you guys are now. And so I thought that was beautiful how the Lord did that. Uh, and I think it'll be really special, and, and I'm hoping to, to give a kind of a big picture overview that maybe paint some more, uh, give some more clarity and put some more feet on where, where you've been in Hebrews 11. But I want to talk to you about drawing near specifically, and I want to talk to you about the example of Enoch, the example of Enoch. And so before we get into that, let's, let's pray together and ask the Lord to meet with us. Father, we do rejoice so much in the privilege that it is to gather together. And we believe you that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. Thank you for that promise. I pray that we would sense and feel your presence here with us this morning. That you would make yourself known and that your word wouldn't fall to the ground, but that you would accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it forth. In our hearts, we pray that you would rend our hearts and that you would make us to be broken before you and to stand in awe at the privilege that we have to draw near to you. I pray that we would be cut, that we would be convicted of the ways that we've treated you so casually and that we've been slack in both our duty and our privilege. And I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us to go on and to move forward and to press on to know you and follow the examples that you've given us in your word. Meet with us and speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, and I'm going to read verses 5 and 6, and hope that my notes don't blow away. <laughs> Okay. Did we lose it? I don't know. I was trying to... Ooh, I got rid of the buzz. Try one, one, two, three. I can talk really loud if I need to. I have no problem with that. One, two, three. One, two, three. Uh, there it is. No okay. buzz. You just need to hold that for the whole time. There. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. It says here, By faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended, or he had this testimony, that he pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, or literally means that he is, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those 
who diligently seek him. That word's missing in some translations, but that the original word means diligently seek him, not casually, but diligently. So must believe, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so that word there, draw near, it's the only time that it's used in chapter 11 in Hebrews, uh, but it's used seven times total in, in the book of Hebrews, and it's a repeated theme. It's, it goes along together with the other theme that we see in Hebrews of to keep on coming up and drawing near to God. It's repeated over and over. And the word in the Greek is prosarkomahi. It means to approach. It means to come near, to worship, to assent to. And so we're going to look at that a little more, what that means to draw near, and we're going to look specifically at the example of Enoch. But before we do that, I, I want to backtrack quite a bit, and um, so we're going to go back, like I said, to the, the Old Covenant and the, the system that the Lord instituted for them to draw near to Him under the Old Covenant. And then we're going to look at really the context of Hebrews in general and the summation of chapters 1 through 10. And then we're going to look specifically at the grounds upon which we can draw near to God. And then we're going to look at a contrast and a warning that is given in the latter half of chapter 10. And then finally we'll get back to Enoch in his example of drawing near. And you're thinking, how in the world are you going to cover all that in 45 minutes? <laughs> so hopefully we can, though. Okay, so we'll bookmark that a little bit. Um, and so the reason that it's so critical to go back into the Old Covenant and see uh, the significance of that system and the way that the Lord set it up is because when we read that, it doesn't, it doesn't lodge in our minds the same way that it would have the recipients of, of, of the letter to the Hebrews. You see, because they were Jewish and so their whole lives they were familiar with the entire system, the sacrificial system and the priesthood and everything that God had set up. And so to them, there was an incredible weight to that concept of drawing near to God. It's not, we treat that relatively casually, you know, like I can wake up in the morning and I can have my quiet time or not. Or maybe I, you know, read my Bible, maybe I pray, maybe I don't, maybe I get some help for the day. But, but the tremendous weight and gravity of that, that would have struck them when they heard that they were able to draw near is profound. And so we have to go back and look a little bit at the context of the, the Old Testament and, and why exactly it was so profound to them. So if we go all the way back to Genesis 3, right after the fall, and it says that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and then it says that this was after Adam and Eve had sinned, and then it says that they hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. And so it really suggests that prior to the fall, that they walked with Him in the cool of the day. And that they didn't hide themselves, but that they actually were with Him, drawing near to Him in His presence. That was the normal course of action, which is why it said that when that wasn't the normal course of action, it makes a point of distinction saying that they hid themselves. It was in the cool of the day when they would normally draw near to God, but they hid themselves. And, so, and then subsequently to that, after the Lord, He when he confronts their sin and he deals with it and he pronounces the curse, then they are, they are kicked out of the garden. They're excommunicated from the garden. And the Lord puts angels around the garden with flaming swords so that they cannot break through and get into the presence of the Lord. But you see, that was life to them. And that was what God meant when he said, In the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, because you'll be cut off from my presence. And that's exactly what happened. They were cut off from the presence of the Lord. Now, they didn't die physically, but they were cut off from His presence, and they didn't have access to get back in to His presence until later on. And so, after that, several generations later, once the many generations later after the, the slavery in Egypt and then the deliverance through Moses and then Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai from God and God gives all of the, the I mean, you, I'd encourage you to go read it. It's incredible. Sometimes we get kind of bored with the Old Testament thinking, well, I don't want to read all these different, you know, all the different stipulations that they had to follow. But 
the Lord does that on purpose. And if you go and look at it, there's so many, so many things that they had to follow down to a T just so that they could have access to God, just so that they could draw near to Him. That under the old covenant, there were all kinds of in the, there was the tabernacle and there were the measurements and the materials and there were the fixtures and the furnishings and then there were the priests and they had a, a priestly code that they had to follow and they had a different, a higher sort of code that they had to follow even than the rest of the people did. And they had specific garments and attire and it was only one specific tribe, the tribe of Levi, that the priests were, that came from. And then they had their ceremonies, all their rituals and their rites. They had particular orders and arrangements. They had the sacrificial system. There were different types of sacrifices and different times that they were offered and then at different frequencies and there were different animals for each type of sacrifice. And then the, the pinnacle of that and the, the high note of that was the Day of Atonement. And that was one time a year when the high priest would go into the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was a, a tent that was set up and the Lord gave Moses instructions to make this tabernacle according to the pattern that he saw when he was on Mount Sinai meeting with God. And God showed him the true tabernacle in heaven and he said, make it according to the pattern. And so he made it according to that pattern and it had there was an outer court outside the tabernacle and then there was the holy place and there were fixtures and specific things in there and then there was the most holy place and it was separated by this veil that was, they say was a handbreadth thick. And some say that it took 3,000 priests to hang up that veil because it was so heavy and it was so thick. And that's the veil that was rent in two from top to bottom when Jesus cried out his last and gave up the ghost on the cross, signifying what we're about to get to later, that there was open access. But they didn't have, yet have open access, and so the high priest could only go in there one time a year and not without blood. He had to follow all the rituals and all of the rites exactly. And if he didn't, then he would die when he went in because the Ark of the Covenant was in there and that was the presence of Almighty God. And, and if he did anything wrong, they would actually tie a rope around his ankle because if he did anything wrong, then no one else could go in there because they would die. And so if he died while he was in there, then they had to have a way to get him out. And so they would tie a rope around his ankle and they, so that they could pull him out in case he did, made some misstep. And he had to sprinkle everything with blood in there after they did the sacrifice. And so that was the one time a year he would go and he would atone for the sins of the people and he would actually be in the very presence of God Almighty. And so that, I mean, think about that. And we treat it so lightly. But that's what they did. And, but, and that was the focal point of their life. I mean, whenever they would take up the tent in the wilderness, the, the, the cloud... The, and, the, and the fire, the cloud by day and the fire by night signified the presence of the Lord and it would go up and he would go somewhere else and they had to pack up the entire tabernacle. And then they, the first thing they did when the cloud stopped or the fire stopped is they would pitch the tabernacle and the entire camp was centered around the tabernacle. And so it's this idea that the presence of God is everything and it was everything to them. And so that's the weight of it. There's this incredible weight. There's this, this, and there's this, there's three things that I want you to notice. There's God's holiness and his separation from sin and from sinners like you and me. There, I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I know, I, 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 I caught it before I, <laughs> before I ripped the camera off. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad I numbered my pages. Okay. Okay. All right. So, the holiness of God and His separation from sinners. Because they, they, there was such a distinction made where they could not approach to Him without following exactly what He said to purify themselves. And then there's the high privilege of nearness to Him. To, to notice that that was that was every there's this incredible privilege to be a priest and an incredible privilege to be the high priest that actually got to go into the very presence of God and then the fact that the nearness of God was their all of life that was everything to them it was what their entire society and their entire structure and everything was set up around and so um, 
you even see this kind of majesty and this glory, and I won't go and read it, but the accounts of Moses when he, when he before the law was given and, and uh, before there, the people were delivered out of Egypt and Moses in the burning bush, you know the story. And he goes and the burning, sees the burning bush and he turns aside and it says that he was afraid even to look. And then when he's, after he, they, he delivers the people, the Lord delivers the people from Israel and Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the commandments. It was this trembling and quaking mountain and it says that if even a beast touched the mountain that he was thrust through with a dart because it was so holy and they couldn't approach to it. Only Moses, the Lord said, only Moses shall come up and receive the commandments from me. And so, that I hope gives a, a pretty good picture and a context of what it was like under the old covenant and why it was so significant, would have been so significant to them, to the Hebrews, when they understood that they had this privilege of drawing near. I mean, it would have blown their minds completely. And so, moving on from that, let's, I want to give a little context of the book of Hebrews Altogether, and I think the best way to sum up the book of Hebrews is the word better. Better. Because it says continually throughout the book, better, 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 better. Count it. Go and count it. It says, I didn't even count it. There's so many times that it says the word better in Hebrews. But that's the theme of the book is that under the new order and the new covenant, God has done something better than the old. And so, in chapters 1 through 6, you get this picture of a better person, Jesus Christ. He's better than the prophets. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers through the prophets, has in these last days now spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed the heir of all things. And He's the express image of His person and the exact imprint of His nature. He's better than the angels. To which of the angels did God say at any time, You are my son, this day have I begotten you? I've always wanted to ask that question to a Jehovah's Witness because they think that Jesus was Michael the archangel. And I've always wondered that. I've never gotten the opportunity to do so, but I've always wondered, how, do, how could you say? Because it says that he's better than the angels, that God's never said to an angel at any time, You are my son. But he said that to Jesus, and so he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Moses was a picture of the law, but Jesus was full of grace and truth. It says in John 1, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He's better than Joshua. It says even though that Joshua brought them into the land, that he spoke of a rest that was yet to come. He's better than Aaron. The pre Aaron was the first high priest, but he died and he passed away. But he's another priest that doesn't die. He is, and so that's chapters 1 through 6. And then, so there's the better person, Jesus Christ. And then you look on to chapters 7 through 10, and it's a picture of a better priesthood, a royal and eternal one. In chapter 7, it's a better order. It, Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, it says. Go and study Melchizedek. He's one of the most mysterious people in all of the Bible. Very little that we know about him. But he's eternal. And not like temporary Levi. It says that the priests who were after the Levitical order could not continue by reason of death, but this man continues by the power of an endless life. There's chapter 8. There's a better covenant. It's a new and internal rather than old and external. I will put my laws in their minds and on their hearts I will write them. And they won't say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. Chapter 9, there's a better sanctuary, a heavenly one, not like the earthly. And, and it gives the picture of Moses when Moses received the instructions from the Lord to make the sanctuary. And, and it says over and over in that chapter, make it according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mount. Moses got a window to look into heaven and to see the tabernacle there in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the city, and on Mount Zion. And the Lord said, make it just like that. That's why it was so specific. 
That's why he had all these different measurements and all the different instruments and the accoutrements and everything that was necessary because he was to make it exactly like the pattern. But it's a better one under the new covenant because we have access into the heavenly one, not just the earthly one that was a picture. And then chapter 10 is the, is the height and the pinnacle, really, of the new covenant. A better sacrifice. The Son of God and not animals. It says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But they had a remembrance made of sins every year. Every year they had it. Because the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things could never make those who draw near perfect. Otherwise they would have ceased to have been offered. But this man, when he made one sacrifice forever, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, expecting until his enemies be made his footstool. And so then going on later in in Hebrews, this is where you have been in chapter 11, the examples of faith. It's the examples of faith. And then chapter 12 is the endurance of faith. And then chapter 13 is the evidences of faith. And so chapters 11 through 13 collectively signify the the, a better life principle, which is by faith. And that's why you see that repeated over and over, starting in chapter 11, with all those examples by faith, by faith, by faith. And so, that, hopefully that gives some context of the, the book of Hebrews as a whole. And chapter 10 is kind of the, the climactic point. And especially in verse 19, which is what we're about to read. So if you turn there, At the beginning, it says in verse 19, Therefore, and whenever you see a therefore, you must ask, What is the therefore, therefore? (laughs) But it's those little words like that that really tie in. I mean, that can be a mountain of revelation if you consider everything that came before that word and then everything that comes after. And so the author of Hebrews is seeking to wrap up his collective thoughts of chapter 10 after he talks about that better sacrifice in the Lord Jesus. And he's really wrapping up the whole rest of the book, beginning from chapter 1 and continuing all the way. And so he says, he go, in, chapter, in verse 17 and 18, he re, reiterates the new covenant and says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. No more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the offerings were finished. They were done. No more required. And then, so he wraps all that up and concludes it by saying this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places, that means the most holy place. It's it's a picture of the holy of holies, like in that tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was, but it's talking about the true heavenly one. Since we have confidence to enter into that most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the veil, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here it is, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so you'll notice in that passage that there are three halves or three havings, depending on your translation. And the first one is having confidence or boldness to enter into the holiest, having confidence or boldness. The second is having a great high priest. And the third is having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we have boldness to enter into the holy place, most holy place. We have a great high priest over the house of God. And we have our hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water. And so those three things are necessary 
And it really harkens back to John 14, 6, because the first one, having confidence to enter into the holiness, is a way. And the second one, having a great high priest, is there's a true person over the house of God. And then the third, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed, is a life. He cleanses and He gives life. And so that's why Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Me. So those three things, are those three havings, and then there are three lettuces. <laughs> it's hard to say, but there are three let, let us. It says three times. And it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. But the one that we really want to focus on is the let us draw near. And I want to read to you, flip ahead a little bit in Hebrews chapter 12, when it actually refers back to Moses drawing near, and then it contrasts that with us drawing near. It says in chapter 12, verse 18, For you have not come... That word is draw near. You have not drawn near to what may be touched, a blazing fire. And so this is describing, uh, this is describing Mount Sinai and what it was like when Moses was drawing near. You have not drawn near to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They actually did do that. They begged the, Moses and they said, let not God speak to us. But you speak to us because they didn't want to hear God's voice. They were afraid and they didn't want to obey it. And if, if a man tells you something, then you can say, well, I can do that or not. But if God tells you something, then you have to do it. And so it says, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, and here's the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of right, the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. And so there's that incredible contrast between the old and the new. The old drawing near and the new drawing near and the old sanctuary and the new sanctuary. And so, you can really kind of, the, the next part that we're about to get to, the warning and the contrast beginning in verse 26 and continuing on to the end of the chapter through verse 39, it's, it's somewhat of a parenthesis, parenthesis. And you can kind of take that out. And if you, if you follow, we're not going to take it out, we're going to cover it. But if you read from verse 25 in chapter 10 and then you jump to uh, chapter 11, verse 1, you can see the flow of thought. And so, because chapter 11 is really this examples of all these men under the old covenant who drew near. And so, verses 26 through 39 are uh, this parenthesis that is both a warning and a contrast. And so the warning is, beginning in verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully or deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment, which shall devour the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done spite unto the Spirit of grace. These are strong words. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. 
and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this is kind of one of those that you just sort of want to race through and then get to the good part. But there, there are five different warnings in Hebrews, and this is one of the strongest ones. When you look at those words that it says that if, if we continue in willful sin, that means if I sin on purpose, if I know that I'm sinning, and I refuse to repent, and I'm walking in it. This isn't the kind of sin where you're fighting it, and you fail, and then you, you get back up. And you, This is the kind of sin that says, I don't want to listen to God. Let God no more speak to me. It's that kind of sin. It's the refusal of His voice and saying, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. And I might even keep going to church while I do it. And I might even keep reading my Bible or keep doing my Bible study. But it says that when we do that, that we trample underfoot the Son of God. That we count that blood, that precious blood of the covenant with which we've been sanctified an unholy thing. And that we do despite to the Holy Spirit of grace. So this is a stern, a stern warning because anyone who has willful sin cannot draw near, truly. You can pretend to draw near, but you can't really draw near. And anyone who has willful sin can't be living by faith. And so therefore, anyone who has willful sin cannot please God like Enoch did. Perhaps there are some of you, even in my hearing, who have some sort of willful sin. And I would just encourage you to take this warning seriously and examine yourselves. We all have to do this. Do I have any willful sin? And if you do have any, then don't resist Him any longer. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart like in the rebellion in the wilderness. Because you might not hear it anymore. There comes a point where there's a hardening and you can't hear anymore. Or maybe He'll stop speaking. And so the second warning after, or the, I should say the second half of the warning after that, in verse 32... It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward." For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and he quotes here Habakkuk 2, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But, and here's that familiar verse that's repeated throughout the New Testament, But my righteous one shall live by faith. Or some translations say, The just shall live by faith. But, if he shrinks back or draws back, see, it's, that's the contrast there. If he draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So that's the, the contrast there. Is there's, a, you, there's only two options. You can either draw near or you can draw back. There's no middle ground with God. If you're not drawing near, then you're drawing back. One is positive and active, and even if you're just slothful and complacent, then you're really drawing back. But there's no middle of the road. There's no neutrality with God. It's either drawing near to Him or drawing back from Him. And, and, and it's no mistake. I mean, he makes this contrast on purpose here because Hebrews is replete with that phrase, draw near, draw near, draw near. And then at the end, right before, he's about to give examples of all these great men and women of faith who drew near to God and pleased Him by faith. He say, says this contrast, don't be like those who draw back. And it's, if you notice in this passage, there are three elements right there in verse 38 that are also present in, verse, in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and we're going to get to them. But there's the element of, there's by faith, and there's drawing back, and there's, so there's faith, there's drawing, and there's pleasure. My, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. 
But see, that's the opposite of what Enoch did. Because Enoch did, he had faith, and he drew near, and he pleased God. So it's, it's pleasing to him when we draw near, when somebody draws near, and it's displeasing to him. You cannot please him if you draw back. And we'll get to that more when we get down to the, the Enoch passage. And so, But I love how he gives the warning there in verse 38, and then he concludes with the, the, con, the contrast to the contrast, and says, But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So, which option are you? I'm asking you today. Are you of those who draw back, or are you of those who draw near? And every one of us has to answer that question. So, let's move on down to into chapter 11. It's interesting... Um, that we have all these examples of men and women who drew near to God, uh, but they had so much less than we have. They had so much less access. They had so, I mean, they didn't have, some of them only had parts of the Bible. Some of them had no Bible at all. And they obviously didn't have the same kind of access into the, that heavenly Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies there that we have. And yet, it gives these examples of how incredibly they lived by faith and the amazing things that they did as they lived that way. So the whole chapter of chapter 11 is examples of those who believed to the saving of their souls and who drew near to God by faith. But it's interesting, uh, you, there are very few definitions of faith in the Bible. Faith is nearly always described by what it does. And, and by what, how it manifests. But there are two abstract statements made about faith in chapter 11, and the first is in verse 1, and it's that definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. And then the, the second is a delineation. So there's a definition and there's a delineation. These are the two abstractions about faith in chapter 11. The rest are just examples. But verse 6, so we're going we're gonna to come at verse 6 and then go back to verse 5 to talk about Enoch. But verse 6 is the delineation and it's, it's pleasing God versus not pleasing Him. And it goes back to that, those same components in the end of chapter 10 and verse 38. Faith and drawing and pleasure. So, if you look at verse 6, and I'll read it again, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so that word there, right after the comma, for, is similar to therefore, but it's reversed. So anytime you see for, you can flip the sentence structure around and, and put plug in therefore. So I'm going to read it to you like that because I think it paints a little bit of a clearer picture as to what the intent of that verse is. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Therefore, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So what that really means is that the emphasis on, in the passage is the, the drawing near. And faith is required in order to do that. And so what's pleasing to God isn't just this kind of abstract faith. And even, I mean, it is pleasing to Him when we believe His Word. But the, the ultimate pinnacle, I'm turning to the side to, to try to help alleviate the wind noise. Uh, but that, that pinnacle of believing Him is really the kind of faith that believes Him and approaches Him. And draws near. So that's what He's after. That's what he's after. He's not just some cold, distant kind of faith, but the kind of faith that draws near to him. And I think that that's a great comfort. Especially, uh, I don't know if you've ever read this chapter and just felt maybe like it's a little bit, um, I don't know if dry is the right word, but but sometimes you can read different things in the Scripture and it feels like it feels a little distant, you know? Like God just wants me to believe Him and that's really all He cares about. But, 
but one of the greatest outworkings and reasons for believing him is in order to draw near to him. This is the ultimate purpose for which Jesus died was so that we could be one with him. Not just to forgive us of sins, but the forgiveness of sins is in order to cleanse the heart and to clear the decks so that he can come in to us and live there and we can come in to where he is and live there with him and be one together. That's the goal of faith. And then to live accordingly. That's why faith can't just be something mental. It involves the heart, ultimately. We're going to get to that in just a second. If I can find that page in my notes. Because it seems like I... Oh, okay. Got lost in my own notes. <laughs> Trying really hard not to dump this. No, you're you're good. Just trying. <laughs> no, I I'm good. I'm good. I'm just trying not to dump your your gear and my gear. Okay, and so I'm gonna we'll explore that uh, that faith is really a heart action a little more in just a second as we look at Enoch. And so now is where we're gonna look at him. That was all just the introduction. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but it was but really that's all foundational and it's the groundwork and it's necessary to really understand Enoch's testimony that he pleased God and that he walked with God. That's all necessary to understand. And so, hopefully that does make, will make this richer as we look at Enoch. So turn, turn to Genesis 5, because this is, this is where Enoch is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's very brief. What we know about Enoch is very brief. And I'll start in verse 18. It says, when Jared, so it goes through, chapter 5 goes through, and it gives the lineage of all the, from Adam all the way to Noah. And it goes through and it tells how long each person lived and then who they fathered. And about two-thirds of the way through, in verse 18, it says, when Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Verse 21, When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Here it says it again, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch walked with God. What a great testimony. Some of the most beautiful testimonies in the Bible are the shortest ones. You know, the biography of Elijah was, that's given in James is that he prayed. And he prayed again. That's just, some men can condense the testimony of people's lives down into two volumes. But you see, God can condense it down into two words. He prayed and so it's similar here with Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Three words. That's his whole life. He walked with God. I was praying that this morning. I said, Lord, make the testimony of my life something just, just something brief like that with so much weight, with such faithfulness to the Lord that the Lord could say something like that about me or about you. Enoch walked with God. And he did it for 300 years, it says. 300 years. Imagine that. There are probably very few of us who have walked with God faithfully even for 30 years. I mean, and even if you're older than 30, then probably it's, it's pretty impressive to have even a 30-year stretch of just strong, consistent faithfulness in pursuit of the Lord. But 300 years, Enoch did this. He walked with God. So what does that mean, to walk with God? Well, it says in Amos 3.3, 3, 
Can two walk together except they be agreed? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Of course they can't. Two people can't walk together the same way unless they've agreed upon a destination and they can't really walk together unless they've agreed upon how to get there. It's kind of like, have you ever done those races where you tie, the three-legged race, where you tie your leg to somebody else's? And if you're going different directions, you're never going to get there. Or if you're going at a different pace, you're never going to get there. Or if you're disagreeing about the method, then you're not going to get there. And so two cannot walk together except they be agreed. And it's not just, a, it's an agreement of the mind, but it's an agreement of the heart, too. It's an agreement of the heart. And that's really what the Lord's after. What's the greatest commandment that the Lord gave in the Old Testament? And Jesus reiterated, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, with all your strength. That's what He's after. He's after the heart. It says in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards Him. Blameless. A heart that belongs to Him. It says in 1 Samuel 13.14 when the Lord was looking for a king over Israel that He was looking for someone He sought for a man after His own heart. He was looking for someone that was looking for Him. He sought someone who sought Him. That's what He's after. And it says in Acts 13, 22, that He found that heart in David. David was a man after God's heart, and He says that, I've found Him who will do all my will. And David writes later in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice. Now think about, okay, think about all of the all of that that we covered in the Old Testament and all the sacrificial system and all those instructions and everything that the Lord set up and how important that was, how critical it was, how detailed they followed it and how precise and how much energy and effort and time was devoted to it. And then David says this in the Psalms and he was part of that too. And it says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's what he's after. And if it, there are all these testimonies in the prophets of how they continued to offer the sacrifices. Over, they continued to follow the rituals, but their heart was far from him. And this is the sin of the Pharisees. They, they did all the rituals and the rites and the rules and everything, but their heart was not with Him. That's what He's after. That's what He's after in somebody who, who walks with Him. We have to be in agreement with His heart. And this is the way that Enoch was. Enoch was in agreement with the Lord's heart. And so that, that phrase uh, that Enoch walked with God, it's translated, in the, it's translated in the New Testament that we read in Hebrews 11, and it's translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Instead of saying that he walked with God, it says he pleased God. He pleased God. So there's, no, there, there's a, a synonymity. Is that a word, Brian? They're synonymous. <laughs> They're synonymous. That, that he can take that and exchange them and say Enoch walked with God and Enoch pleased God. They're two sides of the same coin. Two explanations of the same thing. There's no mistake. So what was it that he did that pleased God? He drew near to him by faith and he walked with him in singleness of heart. Matthew Henry says about Enoch, This was the business of Enoch's life. His constant care and work. While others lived to themselves and the world, he lived to God. It was the joy and support of his life. Communion with God was to him better than life itself. It says in Revelation 4 that the heavenly hosts are crying out to the Lord, You have created all things. For your pleasure they are and were created. For God's pleasure. And it pleased God that Enoch walked with him. And so this, the other thing that it tells us in this passage about Enoch is this kind of mysterious phrase uh, that I've often wondered about until I really studied it. Perhaps you've wondered about it too. It says that he was not. 
That's all, that's what, what does that mean? He was not, for God took him. Anytime you see for, you can usually replace it with because. So, he was not because God took him. So, but, you know, our, our reaction to things like that typically is to try to explain it and to try to understand it on an intellectual level. But sometimes God says things like that that are difficult to be understood with the reasoning mind and that are revealed to the thirsty and hungry heart. And so it's, there's a mystery in it that we just need to let sit for a minute that Enoch was not. And the reason that we need to let it sit, the reason that the Lord puts it there and, and says it that strange way that seems confusing is because it's a picture. It's a picture. What was the way that God revealed himself to Moses when he first revealed himself at the burning bush and Moses asks him who he is and the Lord says to him, I am that I am. And when they ask you, who sent you, you tell them that I am sent you. And it's, it's this declaration of the Lord. It's repeated in the, the Hebrews 11.6 passage. That's what it's hearkening back to when it says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he is. It's hearkening back to God's declaration of his self-existence. He doesn't need anyone else. He didn't come from anyone else. He's totally self-sustaining. I am. And so, so, and that's what we try to do. That's the sin of all sins. That's at the root of every other sin is when we sit, Tozer said, A.W. Tozer said that the sin of all sins is when man sits on the throne of his own heart in his little kingdom and from that throne he looks out and he declares, I am in defiance of God because he thinks that he is king in the own, his own kingdom of mansoul. And so that's, that's the opposite of what we should be. But Enoch walked with God and he was not. He was not. You see, that's, that's the picture. Is that he walked with God so closely that that great I am, that sinful I am, shrank back into nothingness. And God became all. We need some men and women today who are not. So that God can manifest himself manifest to the world that he is that's the picture that's the picture we need to be not we need to get on the cross and become nothing so that he can be everything Matthew Henry says again he was concerning Enoch that he was gloriously removed to a better world as he did not live like the rest so he did not die like the rest and it's really amazing if you go through and you study, um, if you go through that, uh, the lineage that's given in that passage, you find that Adam was 622 years old when Enoch was born. Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam. And you find also that Adam dies before Enoch is taken. And Enoch's 308 years old when Adam dies. And Noah wasn't yet born when Enoch was taken. But so when Enoch was taken, there were five generations before him, and there were two generations after him. And so we don't normally think about that because we don't live that long, but they, I mean, think about that. that, that there was a time when Adam, the first man ever created, and, and Lamech, who was the, the last of that generation before Noah, they were all alive. They were all alive. And I was meditating on this and thinking, well, that's strange that Adam died before Enoch. Why is that? Why, why didn't the Lord let him see Enoch taken? But I think that it's because the Lord wanted to paint another picture of contrast with Adam. And the picture with Adam was the fulfilling of his word that he said in the garden. He said that the day you eat of it, the fruit, you shall surely die. And so there's Adam. He, he's taken before Enoch. He dies before Enoch so, because he's fulfilling that word of the Lord that when you don't listen to my voice, when you disobey me, then you will die. And so he did die eventually, that physical death, the natural way. And then standing in contrast to that was Enoch who walked with God and he heard God's voice and he obeyed God's voice and he listened to him. And so he didn't see death 
That's what Jesus said. It's a picture of what Jesus said in John chapter 8 to the Pharisees that made them so angry. He said, if any man keeps my saying, he will never see death. So you've got those two pictures. The man who doesn't keep God's saying, Adam, and you will surely die, and he did. And then Enoch, who does keep his saying, he didn't see death. He didn't even taste of it. He was translated and taken. And I think that's why the Lord did those two things like that. So you have this whole generation of people, generation after generation after generation, and the only two people who are gone, who, are, who have died in that generation, is the one who disobeyed God's voice and the one who obeyed God's voice. And the one died and the other didn't see death. Wow. <laughs> Maybe we won't. Maybe we won't. If we, we won't see it definitely in the sense that Jesus meant in John 8 when he was talking about that. That whoever keeps his saying will never see death. Well, there's one more thing as we close. I've already gone pretty long, but I wanted to share with you one more thing about Enoch. And it's given in Jude 14. There's this one more thing that we learn about Enoch. If you want to turn to Jude, it's only one chapter. Oh, almost lost it again. Okay, so the whole beginning of Jude, it's talking about false teachers and God's judgment on false teachers. <clears throat> and it says that for them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, verse 13. Okay, and then right after that in verse 14, it says, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, this is what he said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their ungodly deeds that they have ungodly committed and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him, against God. That, that's the only thing, that, that's the only fruit that we see from Enoch's life of walking with God is that he prophesied about the coming judgment. Now, I'm not suggesting that that was the only fruit of his life, but it's significant that that's the only thing that the Lord saw fit to disclose to us. That the fruit, the fruit of his life of walking with God was that he had this kind of burden, that he had his heart so near to the Lord and his heart so in harmony with him that he prophesied against the unrighteousness that he saw. And he prophesied about the coming judgment. And you know who is the the only other person it, that it said in that generation that walked with God, it says that Noah walked with God too. And it says in 2 Peter 2.5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So you have Enoch who walked with God, who was a prophesier of judgment, and you have Noah who walked with God, who was a preacher of righteousness. See, those are two sides of the same coin. It's the, it's, it's, that's why it says in Hebrews 1 about Jesus that you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above all your fellows. It's the two sides of that same coin. The, the, the positive side of loving righteousness and preaching it, which is what Noah did. And then the broken side of hating evil and wickedness and being burdened over it and prophesying to a lost and a dying world, what is coming for them if they don't repent, if they don't trust in the Lord. I think sometimes we, we kind of hear that and think about that and look at that and say, well, that just sounds so mean to say that to people. But, but it's not mean if somebody is destined for certain judgment because of their rebellion against God, then the most loving thing to do is to give them a warning, to give them a warning, a, a loving warning, but to a truthful warning in telling them, in telling them. And so we need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to do that. And I believe, I'm not going to read it, but it talks about later in that passage in Hebrews 12, that, that there is coming a great shaking when the things that can be shaken will be shaken, so that the things which cannot be shaken will remain. 
And I don't know if you have all been paying attention to what's been going on in the world and to what's been going on specifically in our country. And I'm not just talking about the virus. I'm talking about the rampant wickedness and ungodliness that is, that is not just practiced, but that is celebrated and that is thrust upon us at the highest levels of government and from federal government and state government. And, and it just seems like it's this promotion of evil continually just like the Romans 1 when it says that not only did they do those things even though they know that those who do them are worthy of death but they have they give hearty approval to those who do them and and God's mercy and God's long-suffering has a limit and and we can only survive so long as a country, as a people, even in the world. You saw it in Noah's day. God reached the limit and he said that the, imagine, every imagination of the heart of man was only evil continually. And it repented him in his heart that he made man. And so he destroyed man from the face of the earth. And so you can only have a society, you can only have it endure so long when we have essentially built our social structure around the sins given in Romans 1. When there's the, the ruthless slaughter and murder of children in the womb, in the millions. When there's the promotion of sexual perversion and it's being taught to children and shoved down their throats and celebrated and I mean, those two things, there's so many more. You go look, I encourage you, go look at Romans 1 and look at that and just see, just see how close and similar that is to what's happening right now. And so, and so why am I ending on that? Well, I'm ending on that note because I don't think that there's ever really been a time, not in my lifetime, there hasn't been a time when there's been such a necessary moment to draw near to the Lord. There's not been, and, and, and there's coming a time that'll be worse than this. There is coming a shaking because the Lord's not going to tolerate it forever. The Lord's not going to just, He will not be mocked. And there will reach a point when He says, now the time's up. And I, and I believe that His judgment is already being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men here in America. But I think that it's still restrained. And that there is coming a time when He will lift the restraints. And we need to be ready for that. Because if we aren't drawing near and we aren't walking with God and we aren't pleasing to Him and have our hearts unified and aligned with His, then when that time comes, we'll shrink back. We will draw back. You, no one goes into battle who isn't prepared for the battle. You can't train once the battle is already upon you. You must train before. And so we need to do this. So let's do this together. Let's draw near to the Lord and for our own personal strength and for our own fortitude and our own walk with Him. And then also for the sake of being willing to have Him come in and to present our members to Him as instruments of righteousness so that He can take our bodies as a living sacrifice and say the things that He wants to say to people that we know and to our neighbors and to our friends and, and to give them loving warning and to proclaim to them the hope that's in Christ and be willing to speak. That's always the fruit of a true abiding faith. And it's what you see in the book of Acts over and over when they had they walked with him and they had their hearts in alignment with him and they were together with gladness and singleness of heart is that they spoke. They spoke, they spoke, they spoke. That's the testimony over and over in Acts. They spoke the word of the Lord. And so let's do this. Let's do this. Let's draw near to the Lord because this is what an incredible privilege that we have to be able to enter in anytime, any place, anywhere, with anyone into that throne room and join the chorus that's going on there. I encourage you later today to go and read Revelation 4 and 5 to see what's happening in the throne room of God right now and to seek to bring your heart into harmony with that. And so let's pray together. Father, we thank You. We praise You for Your Word that You haven't left us without a witness. We thank You for the testimony of great men and women who have gone before. Men and women who've walked with You and who've pleased You by faith. 
And they had so much less than we have. I pray that you would lay a burden on our hearts and a, a brokenness and a, a longing for you and a desire. Give us eyes to see how holy you are, to have an Isaiah-like vision of you high and lifted up and on the throne in your temple with your train filling the whole room and everything and to see you as holy and to see, give us a vision of our own sinfulness and how unworthy we are to approach to you and then meet us between those two things held in suspense with a vision of the privilege that we have by the blood of Christ and through the new and living way that you consecrated for us to be able to draw near to you and to come in to be with you where you are. This is what you're seeking from us. You want hearts that love you, that treasure you, that belong to you. And I pray that you would produce that kind of heart in every one of us here today. Don't let a single one of us escape this life without having that heart towards you, without drawing near to you. Prepare us, Lord, for the days ahead. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you and give us a spiritual fortitude to stand in these evil days, to be preachers of righteousness and prophesiers of judgment that comes and to have an abiding inner life with you that's able to sustain us and that fills us with joy and with gladness and where we're able to take upon your burden and present ourselves to you for you to use and for you to have pleasure in us. Make that the testimony. Give each one of us here a great testimony like that of our lives that we would be pleasing to you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.